alone in the shower, who fight with passion, and love with passion, and are passion, who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution, who would rather die than fall in line to conform, who constantly challenge the norm, who greet each and every day as if just born, I say to you I know your greatness, the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact, and in fact I know it best when I say to you, I love you. Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. Mm -hmm. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Run! 
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic. And so I want to welcome you to the inaugural University of Denver Juneteenth celebration. The water. I'm going to do this song for my friend back here, Mark.
Thank you. I'm going to do this. my phone, butcher the bacon, the drummer in this, makes no difference what group I'm in.
sucede un pesar profundo entre las penas sin nombre. Yo sé de un pesar profundo entre las penas sin nombre. La esclavitud de los hombres es la gran pena del mundo.
Okay, well, it's me, uh, the B, coming at you from uh, Mutiny Radio. 
coming over you, coming inside you, your ear by your ear, <laughs> talking to you. Sharing the morning shift with you on this July 24th, 2021. The name of the show is Labor and Love. The name of the venue is Mutiny Radio. 2781, 21st Street, corner of Florida. Come on down. Find your voice at Mutiny Radio. This show is called Labor and Love. And it's here we tell you the truth. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Okay, we had that first, first uh, set and uh, started out, well, the last one we heard, of course, was The Last Poets, with the white man's got a God complex. Unfortunately, the God complex seems to go with the office of President Mr. Biden. He's showing signs of developing a God complex. One of the first things he did was bomb Syria to send a statement to the Russians. Does that sound familiar? Ah. Before that, we had Guantanamera, which is the Playing for Change version. And in that version, musicians, Cubanos, Cuban people from all over the world, get together electronically to sing the song Guantanamera in honor of the great patriot Jose Martí, and in honor of the Cuban people who are undergoing violent change now, could it be the U.S. has something to do with that? Could it be? One of Bobby Kennedy's big obsessions was to kill Fidel Castro. Well, it hasn't happened yet. The overthrow, that is. Homage to the Cuban people. And I had started the Playing for Change version of Everyday People, but then inadvertently interrupted it. And we started out with the Sam Cooke classic, Bring It On Home. <clears throat> also a Playing for Change version. People all over the world playing their instruments and having them mixed electronically into one recording. Beautiful idea. So this is the B, and we're bringing you labor news, labor opinion, labor history. Got some articles today I want to talk about. So let's take a look. Labor history in two. What happened on this date in labor history? find out because every day of the year has labor actions all over the world 
at any given moment, there are working people standing up, <coughs> standing up for dignity. And whatever that means in their specific country or place. Ovita Ibar, we talked a little about her last week. <coughs> Pardon me. And we'll connect up with her again. The story of a journalist in Texas, a Chicana, who stood up to the Ku Klux Klan. How about something from the dead Kennedys? <coughs> I had a recommendation from uh, none other than Jose Ramirez. And he said, he's uh, 15 years old, and he said, Bill, you should play something by the dead Kennedys. And I said, what? He said, well, he gave me the title, Soup is Good Food, so we'll listen to that for sure. During the week, I saw the film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and uh, had some questions about the authenticity of the play. It's a beautiful play. Um, if there's a better uh, dramatic actress than Viola Davis, I don't know who it is. I'll just say that. Our Labor and Love Radio, our labor beat, Stories from all over about labor and what's happening. Who was Judy Berry? Another person I kept saying we're going to have a show about. Judy Berry who united that which never should have been torn apart. The environmental movement and the labor movement. Why did Winona Duke, Native American activist, get arrested? Why indeed? Radio Labor has a couple of uh, features this week we're going to have a listen to. And uh, Susan Tedeschi, I hope I'm saying that name correctly, and the Tedeschi Trucks Band. All that and more on labor and love. But let's start out with radio labor. And the headline goes, millions are losing their jobs in food supply systems. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Polanger. The annual conference of the International Labor Organization is taking place virtually with representatives of governments, employers, and workers. The ILO is the United Nations specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. It is operated in a tripartite manner with all three social partners involved in the policy development and management of the organization. 
one of the labor organizations which reported on its activities during the virtual conference was the IUF. The IUF represents a wide range of workers in sectors such as food, farms, hotels, restaurants, and fast food chains. Its general secretary is Sue Longley. The IUF is the Global Trade Union Federation representing workers throughout the food chain. We have 423 affiliated trade unions in 127 countries. COVID-19 hit the IUF's membership in very different ways, with our food and agricultural membership quickly classed as essential workers and obliged to carry on working, often putting their own health at risk to ensure the global supply of food. While workers in hotels, restaurants, and tourism were laid off in their millions as the sector closed. COVID-19 highlighted fundamental failures in our food system. In 2020, US researchers looking at occupational data on people aged 18 to 65 found workers in the food and agriculture sector were at the highest risk of death from COVID-19. We had COVID-19 hotspots in many parts of the food chain, but especially in meat packing and in vegetable pack houses. Why was this? Because these are sectors highly dependent on vulnerable and hugely exploited migrant workers, often living in overcrowded conditions and unable to isolate if they or members of their families fall sick because they have no access to proper sick pay or social protection. Access to sick pay and social protection should be a global right. The outsourcing and subcontracting that drive the exploitation of migrant workers has to end. We welcome the recent legislative change in the German meat sector that shows how this can be done. COVID-19 also revealed the very poor occupational health and safety practices in parts of the food chain. Social distancing was impossible in meat and other food processing facilities because of line speeds. And in agriculture, there was often no access to sanitizers or even to clean water for hand washing. This underlines the urgent need to implement the recommendation of the ILO Centenary Declaration to include occupational health and safety amongst the fundamental conventions. In the tourism sector, although there is a slow reopening in some parts of the world, the forecast is grim. The UN World Tourism Organization states that over 100 million jobs are at risk. We need an urgent global response, for example, a global tourism recovery summit to ensure both a safe reopening and a move to a much more sustainable tourism sector with decent work and protection of the planet at its heart. We welcome the recognition in the DG's report that women have suffered disproportionate job and income losses during the pandemic. The pandemic also saw a shocking increase in domestic violence. This must drive efforts to ratify and implement Convention 190 to ensure women are both protected in the workplace and at home. The IUF joins our sister global unions in calling for a waiver of the intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines and for increased funding to speed up production and access to vaccines. Finally, Last week's ILO and UNICEF figures on child labor should have shocked and distressed the world. 8.4 million more children in child labor in the last four years, with millions more at risk due to the impacts of COVID-19. 
For years now, we've been calling for a concerted global action to tackle child labour in agriculture, the biggest single employer, 70% of all child labour. Unless this is done, child labour will not be eliminated. COVID-19 is going to worsen the situation. We need a food system based on decent work for adults and no use of child labour. More information about the IUF can be found on the union's website at iuf.org. The ILO's online conference can be followed at ilo.org. The conference continues its first stage until June 19, 2021. Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. The Global Union for Teachers, Education International, is warning that the use of artificial intelligence in schools may lead to loss of privacy for students and minimizing the role of teachers. EI represents more than 30 million teachers and other education workers in 172 countries. It recently released a report outlining concerns that huge education companies will collect massive amounts of data on students and replace teachers with computer programs. I talked to one of the authors of the report about EI's concerns. Anna Hogan is a lecturer at the University of Queensland in Australia. I asked her about the activities of Pearson, one of the education corporations using artificial intelligence in education. Pearson is one of the world's largest education companies, and it's moved from being this textbook supplier to become this really mainstream provider of all sorts of education products and services. So things like curriculum materials, assessment, online learning programs, teacher professional development, and the list goes on. Uh, and what Pearson's doing, or their strategy, is really moving into that development of the digital learning aspects of their business. And how they're doing that is working towards personalised learning programs that start to integrate artificial intelligence. So personalised learning is where students sit at their computer and they learn through an algorithm which dictates what they need to learn. So you can think of it a little bit like a Siri or Alexa becoming your new school teacher. And the way that companies like Pearson develop these programs, it requires a huge amount of data. They need to understand how students learn to be able to program an algorithm that can essentially teach students what they need to know and in a way that's best for that particular individual. So to get to your uh, question about why we're concerned about this type of um, data privatisation, and there's quite a few issues here. So the first one's around privacy. So in terms of how student data is collected and what types of data are collected. And then this links to the issues of consent. So often users don't have a knowledge or understanding that their data is being collected or in the way that it is used. So for example, Pearson will collect data from users interacting with its products and services in responses to their exercises, assignments, coursework, instructor comments, the activities they've completed. While these are all de-identified and aggregated to analyse how um, Pearson services are used and then going into their education research and supporting the strategic development of its products and services. But in the report, we basically suggest that then this leads to issues of transparency, as consent is not always explicitly sought. And then there's also issues around data ownership and data responsibility, as Pearson suggests they're only stewards 
of student data and it's actually owned by its institutional customers. Which then leads to this idea that I suppose around data openness because if schools own the data or students own the data and Pearson owns the products that are being produced and sold from the data and essentially the knowledge is being locked up in corporate silos, meaning that the benefit for learners and society more broadly is not realised. So this is what we call the privatisation of the data and the data infrastructure. So if Pearson was to open up and share their knowledge of their algorithms and what they're learning from this data, then potentially the social benefits for all of society in terms of student knowledge and understanding would be uh, greatly enhanced. And I suppose uh, the last thing to sort of raise in terms of the concern is about the ethics of these programs themselves. So we know that personalised learning uses algorithms to predict customers' capabilities. And these predictions basically allow students to go to next types or it basically grants or withholds their access to different types of learning opportunities. So in a way, students are being taught through these predicted actions and it's not really allowing them the opportunity to surprise us as they often do in our traditional classrooms. The report you co-authored with Sam Sellar raises many concerns about personalised learning, including its potential to reduce the number of teachers. Tell us about that. I think the point of personalised learning is that this happens on computers and it very much lessens the reliance of brick-and-mortar schools and professional teachers. So in a way, Pearson already operates virtual public schools. They're called Connections Academies. Essentially, students log in from their computer in their own home for their entire education. Pearson's already the second biggest provider of these schools in the US and they're hoping to grow to increase their market share. Now, the role of teachers in these particular learning systems is very much a supporting role. They're no longer intended to be the imparter of knowledge. They're more responsible for student management, not the curriculum. The curriculum is set and the learning experience is an assessment source by the algorithm itself and the algorithm searches for relevant material from public domain and creative common resources. Already Pearson Realize has announced a partnership with Google Classroom that can help teachers assign their students content and assessment with all these scores and data flowing back to Pearson and Google. Um, We sort of make the point in the report that personalised learning is a move that increases the chance that teachers' work is more autonomised, it deprofessionalises teachers, and it basically questions whether teachers need to be university-trained graduates with this really in-depth knowledge of curriculum assessment and pedagogy, given these skills will no longer be required by them, but actually handled by the algorithm itself. So we suggest that Pearson is essentially reducing the need for trained teachers and consequently the cost of teacher salaries for schools and school systems. And this idea that paying appropriate wages is one of the major obstacles of the funding and in some cases, in fact, the profitability of school systems around the world. So we all kind of make the point across the report when you, when you consider all these um, concerns together that personalised learning can potentially contribute to the undermining of the social purposes of schooling, which we know schools are meant to extend beyond the formation of that individual knowledge and skills to the development of healthy societies, the promotion of certain types of values, social and emotional well-being, and in fact just interactions between community members. And as we suggest, all this contributes to certain risks for public education moving forward over the coming years. We sort of make the point in the report that personalised learning is a move that increases the chance that teachers' work is more autonomised, it deprofessionalises teachers, and it basically questions whether teachers need to be university-trained graduates with this 
really in-depth knowledge of curriculum assessment and pedagogy, given these skills will no longer be required by them, but actually handled by the algorithm itself. The report prepared by Ms. Hogan and Sam Sellar is called Pearson 2025, Transforming Teaching and Privatizing Education Data. You can find more about the report on Education International's website at www.ei-ie.org. our radio labor segment <clears throat> two reports this week about the people who are losing their jobs in the food supply systems beginning of course with the farm workers who are always it seems the uh, last ones to get benefits and the first ones to get laid off when it's time even though they put food on our tables that's farm workers all over the world and the second segment was about replacing teachers. During this whole pandemic, Mr. Cuomo, the governor of New York, made sort of a scary prediction. He said, you think we're going to go back to uh, school as it used to be? One teacher and 20 kids or 30 kids, whatever it is. No, it's not going to happen. So already... According to this report, people like the people who work at the Pearson Company, the uh, big educational supply, and as she said, everything educational <clears throat> and new artificial intelligence uh, collection of data about our kids. And I'll say this right here and now as a, as a former teacher. If there is any, any endeavor in our lives where that person-to-person -person contact is important, is crucial, is inevitable, it's in education. Kids learn best from people that they trust. What kind of person would it be who was raised and educated completely electronically or at a distance? And share your vision. I have that vision of somebody sitting in Nevada and pressing a button and a bunch of people in Afghanistan, for instance, going to a wedding and here come out of nowhere this drone, and bam, 50 people are dead. And no one feels anything about it, because it all happened on screen. The guy who actually did it is under orders. He doesn't see the results of his work. He might see it for a couple of seconds. Anyway, it's a new world we're getting into, but it's not brave. Okay, I, I say over the last week, I saw a film about Gertrude Ma Rainey, one of the first great blues singers. And the movie starred 
great Viola Davis. <clears throat> and, well, let's listen to this. This is, first, let's listen to Ma Rainey. This is the Deep Moaning Blues. That was uh, Ma Rainey, um, the Deep Moaning Blues, 1928. A little feature about the film and how close it is to what really happened. You didn't see the rest? Now I'm going to show you the best. Ma Rainey's going to show you her black bottom. We're down south in Alabama. 
Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a new Netflix biopic starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, documenting one tense, pivotal day in the rehearsal room of a Chicago recording studio. But unless you're a passionate student of musical history, you might not know who Ma Rainey was. That's because, despite being crucial to the development of the blues and even influencing modern music, until recently, Ma Rainey hasn't had the kind of recognition she undoubtedly deserves. So who was Ma Rainey? Let's take a look. Where's my Coke? I need a Coke. Hard as it is, sure. I need Coke. What's the matter, Ma? Where's my Coke? I need a Coke, Coke, Coke. Ma Rainey was born Gertrude Pridget sometime in the 1880s. Contradictory census records mean it was either 1886 in Columbus, Georgia, or maybe 1882 in Alabama. Her parents were both minstrel troupe performers, one of the few professional opportunities available at the time for black entertainers in America. She began singing at an early age, appearing at the Springer Opera House in Columbus when she was just 14, before leaving home in 1900 to tour with a traveling minstrel group. According to Gertrude, her first experience of what eventually would become known as the blues was on tour in Missouri in 1902. A young woman came to Gertrude with a sad, poignant song about a disappeared lover, a song Gertrude learned and added to her encore. Gertrude became one of the first artists to incorporate the distinctive feeling and style into her own minstrel and vaudeville performances. This set her on the path to becoming the mother of the blues, successfully bridging the divide between cabaret-style shows that catered largely to white audiences and authentic black folk music. In 1904, a comedy minstrel singer named William Parr Rainey heard Gertrude perform, and they were married the same year. Gertrude, still just 18, changed her name to Ma Rainey and began touring with a variety of troops under the name Rainey and Rainey, Assassinators of the Blues. They also toured with the Rabbit Foot Minstrels, one of the most esteemed troops of the era. For over a decade, Rainey and her husband performed across the South and Midwest, refining her act and sound. Although perhaps refine does her style a disservice, this was country or down-home blues, a raw emotive expression of the black experience in the rural South. Blues help you get out of bed in the morning. It was about feel. Lyrics were replaced with moans, and Rainey's rich, rattling contralto resonated with her growing audience. As Rainey's fame grew, she also became acquainted with a young Bessie Smith, whom she took under her wing. Smith would become known as the Empress of the Blues, and although she went on to make almost twice as many records as Rainey, the two cemented an enduring friendship, but blues wasn't the only thing they had in common. Both Rainey and Smith were openly bisexual, and Ma Rainey proudly proclaimed this in some of her songs. Rainey separated from her husband, Pa, in 1916, and began touring with her own show, Madame Gertrude, Ma Rainey, and her Georgia Smart set. Her popularity grew over the next eight years, and it's around now that Rainey claimed to have invented the name blues, based on a pentatonic scale with an African-derived blue note to describe her style of music. In many respects, Rainey was responsible for the soaring popularity of emerging blues and jazz in the early 20th century. 
but greater recognition was yet to come. In 1923, after 25 years of hugely successful live performances, Rainey made her first recording with the small Wisconsin-based Paramount label at the age of 38. This led to a brief but successful stint with the company, during which Rainey recorded approximately 100 songs. I make more money for this outfit than anybody else you got put together. But when Paramount went bankrupt in the 1930s, these tracks fell out of print, and it wasn't until the late 1960s that most of her recordings were properly reissued. Ma Rainey wasn't just a performer either. She was also a self-assured and powerful entrepreneur, comfortable with exerting her influence in spaces usually reserved for white men. Well, we just figured, who's this we? What do you mean we come talking this we, sir? Who we? She knew how valuable her work was to Paramount, and this is something we see represented in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Rainey formed a backup band in 1924 with famed arranger Thomas A. Dorsey, which took her to major cities like Pittsburgh, Detroit and Chicago, where she'd spend much of the 1920s and 30s performing with the likes of Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton. But during the Great Depression, the market for jazz and blues declined and Rainey was dropped by Paramount in the early 1930s. She continued performing on the vaudeville circuits for a few years, but retired to Columbus when her mother and sister died in 1935. Rainey managed three theatres there, the Lyric, the Airdrome and the Liberty, until she died of a heart attack on December 22, 1939, at the age of 53. You let me tell the story? Well, if you're going to tell it, tell it right. It's only within the last 40 years that Ma Rainey's indelible mark on music has been celebrated. She was inducted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame in 1983 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. The US Postal Service issued a stamp in her honor in 1994. And the play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the basis for the new film, was written by legendary writer August Wilson and premiered in 1984 bringing her story to new audiences for the first time. The film, with Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, is poised to do the same thing. I wanna learn that dance. Okay, that's good, Ma, that sounded great. Good job, boy. <laughs> So that was Ma Rainey. Uh, if you haven't seen the film or the play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom by August Wilson, uh, go see it. it. It has to do with one recording session, uh, but you learn so much from that one recording session. Gertrude Ma Rainey. I'm going to talk a little bit about Jovita Ivar. And Jovita Ivar was uh, an activist, a Chicana, born in Laredo, Texas, in 1885, about the same time that Ma Rainey was born in uh, Georgia, some people say. Um, <clears throat> Ivar had a lot to do with organizing. Mexican 
American Chicano resistance to the vicious system of racism run by the Ku Klux Klan. <clears throat> at one point, at one point, the Klan actually confronted her. But uh, let's see if we can find <clears throat> Avite Var. Avite Var was born in Laredo, Texas in 1885, one of eight children. Uh, she's grown up. She's described as imaginative, spirited, eager student, won prizes for her poetry, and enjoyed reading before an audience. Uh, she became a teacher. There were never enough textbooks, she said, for my students or enough paper, pens, or pencils. If all the students came to class, there were enough, not enough chairs or desks for them. She claimed that Chicanos paid taxes to support schooling for their children, yet they were denied entry. She realized that her teaching efforts were making little impact on student lives due to the ill-equipped and segregated schools. Okay, we're familiar with the whole system of segregation. A lot of, lot of us, by being acquainted with the history of the uh, Black Revolution of the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on. The same thing was happening in the Southwest to Mexican people and there were signs that said no dogs or Negroes or Mexicans allowed. And people like Jovite Ivar decided to do something about that. Like uh, another Chicana leader, Dolores Huerta, Jovite Ivar turned from education in the classroom to journalism. She returned to Laredo. She had been <clears throat> based uh, a little few miles outside of Laredo, returned to Laredo and worked for her father's newspaper, La Cronica. And at this time, of course, the Mexican Revolution, we're talking about 1910 through 1920, And uh, La Cronica became a, a major voice for Mexican and Tejano rights. Oita wrote articles under a pseudonym exposing the poor living conditions of Mexican-American workers and supported a Mexican revolution against the uh, uh, Porfirio Diaz government. And La Cronica established a fraternal order to discuss the troubling social issues of the day, Orden de Caballeros de Honor, 
Gentleman of Honor, and in 1911 held the first Congreso Mexicano, which was the forerunner of the 1960s, 68, uh, <clears throat> the Great Chicano Conference in Denver, Colorado. Um, In 1918, her book was based on her Ph.D. dissertation called Redeeming La Raza, Transborder Modernity, Race, Respectability, and Rights, while working at La Cronica, she founded a League of Mexican Women, uh, just endlessly going around organizing. Some league members were trained educators and professionals in the education of youth remained the organization's primary focus. They collected food and clothes for those in need. In 1913, when Nueva Laredo, a city on the Mexican side of the border, was attacked, Idar and other Laredo women crossed the, the Rio Grande to volunteer to help with the wounded. Idar later joined La Cruz Blanca, the White Cross, an organization that provided relief to the Red Cross. She began writing El Progreso, an editorial published in El Progreso, criticized President Woodrow Wilson's order send American troops to Mexico and the, uh, the editorial offended the U.S. Army and the Texas Rangers. The Rangers attempted to close El Progreso, but Idar blocked the entrance to the door. At this time, the Texas Rangers and the Ku Klux Klan were sort of Two faces of the same organization, two faces of the own, the repressive laws that uh, white supremacist laws. Um, she blocked the door. The Rangers attempted to close El Progreso when she was not at the newspaper's office one day. The Rangers returned to ransack and destroy the printing presses, effectively shutting down the newspaper. After her father's death in 1914, she became the editor and writer at La Cronica. In November 1916, she founded a weekly paper called Evolución, which remained in operation until 1920. She moved to San Antonio in 1921, where she founded a free kindergarten and also volunteered in a hospital as an interpreter. In 1917, she married Bartolo Juarez, who worked as a plumber and a tinsmith. They lived together in San Antonio until her death, June 15, 1946, which was reported to have been caused by 
tuberculosis. For more about Jovita Ivar and about the alternative press in general, read uh, Juan Gonzalez's excellent book, News for All. Gonzalez, of course, is one of the hosts of Democracy Now! So that's Jovita Ivar. And would be fine. Let's see if we could find a video about her so we could. Okay. So that's Hovite Var. And let's jump on to some music. As I said, uh, Jose Ramirez uh, turned me on to this song, Soup is Good Food. Just have to kill yourself somewhere else. 
Hi. So that was, of course, Statesboro Blues by uh, the redoubtable <clears throat> Ry Cooter and his buddy Taj Mahal, who go way back together. The Tedeschi's.
Linda Tedeschi with her, <clears throat> her husband, Daryl Trucks, skipping over the ocean like a stone. Everybody's talking. Great song by Fred Neal, made possible, popular by Harry Nielsen. from the song Midnight Cowboy. Before that, we had the Statesboro Blues with Taj Mahal and Ry Cooter and their, and their band. Of course, talking about the Statesboro Boys, young, young black men who were accused of raping a, a white girl on a train. He later recanted, of course. Uh, they weren't released for many years, and it was a cause celeb like Sacco and Vanzetti, or uh, in this in this neighborhood, Tom Mooney. Injustice must always, always be opposed. Okay, let's take a look at the labor beat. Tedeschi we did. Ovite Var we did. Judy Berry. Let's listen to something about Judy Berry, the organizer who saw the confluence, not, not the contradictions between the labor movement and the environmental movement. This is from Democracy Now. ...and got involved with the movement to stop the clear-cutting of old-growth redwood trees. She helped organize a campaign called Redwood Summer to bring thousands of activists to join the fight. But in 1990, a pipe bomb blew up in her car when she stopped at a, at a stop sign in Oakland, California, en route to a demonstration. This is Judy Berry in an excerpt from a new film that looks back at the attack. I was driving my car... And I was um, driving down the street and I was following somebody at a certain point. I think she was getting ready to make a turn and I was trying to follow her and realized I wasn't going right and I quickly hit the brake. And at the time when I hit the brake, um, there was a very huge explosion and I felt it rip through me. The explosion being so powerful that the sound itself had a force. I was amazed. I mean, I've, I've been in Vietnam, I've seen bombed, bombed vehicles, and I was amazed. When I first looked at that car, I couldn't see a driver. What happened next that you can recall? The next thing I remember, I, the car was stopped, and there were people around, and I was in incredible pain that I had never felt before. I knew my back was broken. My legs both were immobile at the time. I knew that my body was ruined. I knew that I was paralyzed. I felt that I was dying. The driver was identified as 40-year-old Judy Berry, also of Ukiah. Both victims are members of the environmental group Earth First. Both were taken to nearby Highland hospitals. The passenger was taken out first. Was someone in the car with you when the explosion occurred? Yes, Daryl Turney was riding in the passenger seat. After the incident, Judy Berry and her passenger, Daryl Cherney, both with the environmental group Earth First, were charged with transporting explosives themselves. 
In the end, the charges were never pursued, and to this day, the question remains, who bombed Judy Barry? That's also the title of a new documentary that played last night in Oakland and screens today in Los Angeles at the Monica Lemley Theater. We're joined now by its producer—that's right, the passenger in the car, Daryl Cherney. Uh, Daryl, um, describe that moment when the bomb went off, uh, the role of the FBI in accusing the two of you of basically bombing yourselves and why you've produced this film. Well, the world was pretty much turned upside down. My head was ringing. Uh, Judy was calling out in pain. I just kept telling her I loved her and that she was going to live. <clears throat> I was taken to the hospital where the FBI walked in and just said to me, this is your bomb, so why don't you confess, make it easy on all of us, and get it over with. And it was at that moment I thought of Leonard Peltier of the American Indian Movement and Geronimo Gijaga Pratt of the Black Panthers and realized that the FBI had now turned its attention it's COINTELPRO operation toward Earth First. That was back in 1990. Talk about the legal case that went forward from there. Judy has since died, though she didn't die then. She died of cancer. Talk about what has happened since that time. We're talking about 20 years ago. You're still in court. Well, Judy Barry and I sued the FBI primarily for violations of the First Amendment that they deliberately and knowingly lied, that they knew we were innocent, but they lied and said we were guilty in order to shut us up. That is, in fact, a violation of the First Amendment. The lawsuit dragged on for 12 years because the FBI kept appealing different things. In the process, Judy Barry passed away from cancer after living her last seven years in pretty serious pain. But her lawyers, her estate, and myself took them to trial in Oakland in 2002, and a jury after hearing six weeks of pretty unbelievable testimony, literally unbelievable testimony from the FBI and the Oakland police, awarded us $4.4 million. So when the FBI set their sights on the two of you, they stopped looking around. Who do you think and what evidence has come forward to suggest who did this and what was this bomb in your car? Well. We know that the FBI held a bomb school just 30 days before we were bombed. They were blowing up cars in Eureka, California, where I live, or near where I live, uh, and they were doing it on a Louisiana Pacific Lumber Company clear cut. Uh, two weeks after that, a bomb went off at a Louisiana Pacific sawmill that uh, eventually they tried to pin that on Judy and myself, too. And then two weeks after the sawmill was bombed, Judy Barry's car was bombed by the exact same bomber who took credit for this in a letter that was sent to the newspapers. So there seems to be a thread between the lumber companies and the, and the FBI, uh, and then all the way to the bombed car. Uh, the, we are now in court to try to get the first bomb that didn't go off quite well, not the one in Judy's car, but the one at the lumber mill. We believe there's DNA evidence on that. There's about six feet of duct tape that remains on that bomb. We think there could be fingerprints, duct tape, hair samples, and as part of getting our money, uh, we took less money, but in exchange for that, we demanded the evidence be returned to us. The FBI is now appealing that, saying they don't want to return over uh, those bomb remnants to an independent forensics laboratory. We're trying to get a DNA sample to see if we can identify who the bomber is. The letter was from the Lord's Avenger, and the bomb was placed under Judy's seat, the driver's seat, a very unlikely place if you had put it there yourselves. The bomb itself had a motion trigger. It was only going to go off in a moving car. It was placed underneath Judy's seat. It was designed to kill her only when the car was moving, so she had to be in the vehicle for the bomb to go off. It was so obvious the police knew that at the time. They found the ball bearing that had to roll around and touch a positive and negative wire for the bomb to explode. 
So, and they even wrote booby trap on the first uh, police report. So they knew it was a victim-operated device, and yet they blamed us Darryl, pretty much we're going to continue this discussion after the show, and we'll post it online at democracynow.org. So please stay seated. The um, FBI and its efforts to silence Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney and, of course, the whole Forest First movement. Imagine that. You know, your car blows up and you're in the hospital and the FBI comes in and says, you did it. Now confess. blew up your own car so you could hurt yourself? No, come on. Perhaps the FBI uh, was saying that <clears throat> they were carrying the bomb somewhere? Where would they be carrying? Anyway, the whole mysterious case of Judy Berry. Um, At one point, the FBI tried to say that Judy Berry's ex-husband had planted the bomb. Well, you know, anything that'll hold up, hold up the police, hold up the FBI, COINTELPRO. Okay, Winona LaDuke was arrested last week. Seven women in total were sitting together praying on an easement and protesting construction of the Enbridge Line 3 oil pipeline near Park Rapids at the Shell River when they were arrested for trespassing. White Earth Ojibwe activist and former Green Party vice presidential candidate Winona LaDuke was reduced was released from jail Thursday after her arrest Monday while protesting construction of an oil pipeline in northern Minnesota. She and six other women were sitting together praying on an easement and, protect, and protesting construction of the Enbridge Line 3 oil pipeline near Park Rapids at the Shell River which the pipeline will cross in five places when they were arrested for trespassing. He was released late Wednesday in the Alton County Jail, while other women were released from the Wadino County Jail that day. I think this is what you call the Enbridge Way. Make sure that hundreds of Minnesota citizens are put in jail so they can steal 5 billion gallons of water and put the last tar sands pipeline in. The pipeline that's supposed to take the, uh, the tar sands, that's fracked oil, to New Orleans. Winona LaDuke says it's not patriotic, Governor Tim Waltz, to give the water, the land, and our civil rights to a Canadian multinational. 
pipeline will replace an, an existing pipeline, which the company says is needed for safe transport, local communities and construction, trade groups, trade unions, say that the 337-mile, 2.9 billion crude oil pipeline is a key source of economic vitality in struggling communities. So far, about 500 people have been arrested during protests led by Ojibwe tribes and environmentalists. She posted a $6,000 bond. The alleged corruption in the State Department of Natural Resources saying it had been wooed by Enbridge. Last month, the DNR allowed Enbridge to increase the amount of oil of water it will temporarily displace from aquifers to make way for construction. Canadian tar sands oil is facing another threat. This one financial, more than $13 billion in Canadian oil sands assets may be on the market soon as major oil companies divest from controversial tar sands oil under pressure to cut emissions and invest in renewable energy. According to an inve investment report cited by the Calgary Herald, that's on the popularresistance.org website. Labor and Love Radio. What do we got? As devastating plant shutdown looms in West Virginia, national outrage is hard to find. Joe Guzd is pissed as president of the United Steelworkers Local 8, 957 in Morgantown, West Virginia. He represents more than 800 of the 1,500 workers who are set to lose their jobs on July 31st. When the Viatris Pharmaceuticals plant in Morgantown shuts down for good. And although he's used to fights, he does not like feeling abandoned. Ask what he's hearing from representatives in the federal government as the plant shutdown looms, and he'll tell you not a goddamn thing. Oh, there's a little... <laughs> what do we call that? A fly in the ointment? The owner of one of these companies that's shutting down is the daughter of Joe Manchin. And could it be the Democrats are keeping quiet because they don't want to offend Joe Manchin and his uh, vote? More on this one later. We'll, we'll check on that. This one is about a Workers' Olympics from 1921 to 1937. 
athletes and working people got together on their own. First off, 60% of the people in Japan thinks the games think the game should be postponed or canceled outright. Even with bleachers empty of spectators, the events are already spreading COVID-19. Working people in Japan are footing the bill of at least $27 billion. And the Japanese government is letting people lose their homes and die in order to get a fleeting geopolitical boost. Like they do every two years, the Olympic Games highlight the absolute best and the absolute worst of sports. Young people train for years to compete with the best athletes in the entire world, but these pinnacles of physical accomplishment are controlled by a shady clique of capitalists and aristocrats calling themselves the International Olympic Committee. Cities that host the games spend untold billions and displace people from their homes, only to be left with useless venues that are left to rot. These games are furthermore mired by racism, sexism, and transphobia. Aftermath of the Olympics. Um, I can attest to the fact that in the Greeks in 2004 went all out to hold the Olympic Games and it kind of ruined the whole, uh, the whole economy. Berlin Games. We'll go all the way back. This is on Insider. I looked that up. 35 eerie pictures that show what happens to Olympic venues after the Games end. Lost and forgotten. For that article on the Labor and Love website, all these stories that I'm referencing right now can be found on the Labor and Love website. Labor and Love Radio, that is, on Facebook. Follow us, please. Okay, well, it, we're just about to the end. I want to play a song by the Chicks, a.k.a. the Dixie Chicks. They've changed their name. Uh, probably because they don't like the idea of Dixie, that maybe it's a put-down or a referencing back to when Dixie, the uh, South southern part of the United States, were slave states. That doesn't mean that the northern states were free of segregation or prejudice or murder or any of those things. It's just that those southern states identified 
with it. Now this is called March, March by the Chicks. If your voice had no power, they wouldn't try to silence you. March to my own drum, march, march to my own drum. Hey, hey, I'm an army of one. Oh, I'm an army of one. March, march to my own drum, march, march to my own drum. Hey, hey, I'm an army of one. Oh, I'm an army of one. Red is back in here because she don't like Mondays. Underpaid teacher, police in the hallways. Print yourself a weapon and take it to the gun range oh, cut the shit you ain't going to the gun range standing with them and our sons and daughters watching our youth have to solve our problems i follow them so who's coming with me after you love me half already hate me march march to my own 
That was March March to My Own Drum by the redoubtable Chicks, one of the best-selling country groups ever. Um, gave up a lot to make that statement against the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Lost a lot of fans, but I'm sure they gained a lot more. <laughs> uh, it's about time for us to go here. Let's see. Looking for Kerry Miraji to take us out. Kerry Miraji, the Japanese classical guitarist playing her version, the Internacional. This is the B. Wishing a good week and good work. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table where you work. A negotiating table, that is. You're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Please stay tuned for Flat Black Plastic with Scott O'Walker. And like I say, have a good week and good work. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Mutiny, mutiny radio, got a mutiny, mutiny radio, got a mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio, got a mutiny, mutiny radio, got a mutiny radio, my friend. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny?
Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead passers? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshops, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Let's watch Full Length Movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent. Five yeah, percent right. Percent I'm time. so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, let's watch full length. Let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Oh, Bye. See, ya. See you next month. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I am a total of Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m.
song is called Acid and Fapping. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion, and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Fantastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy 